Good morning, Hill family. If you have a Bible, please open it to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. It's a joy to worship with you this morning. It's a joy to lead you in the preaching of God's Word. My name is Jimmy. I am one of the pastors here at the Hill Church. A few announcements you saw there. Tonight, we'll be back for corporate prayer at 5 p.m. here. Child care is provided for our toddlers and younger. Please make time and be here. It's a sweet time to gather and pray. Uh, together as a body. And then starting this Wednesday for the next consecutive uh, four Wednesdays in this month, we do what we call our J-terms, where our community groups, rather than meeting in homes as we do, all collectively meet here at the church on Wednesdays, and we kind of study a more uh, focused topic in some sort together uh, to kind of think about and help us walk together as disciples of Christ. We want to do that thinking about the topic of evangelism um, for the next four weeks. So please be here. be a great time uh, to fellowship, a uh, great time to sit under the word together, to grow in our affection for the Lord by learning how we can share the gospel and take the message of Christ to our neighbors more effectively. So we'd love to see you here on those Wednesdays. In July of 1961, 38 players of the Green Bay Packers reported a training camp for the start of a new season. And just a few months earlier, they had lost the national championship game by squandering a fourth quarter lead to those pesky Philadelphia Eagles. And with this disappointing finish in mind all summer long, the team had finally reported for camp ready to get to work. Players and coaches no doubt were eager to advance their game to the next level. I'm sure trying to figure out all the details, the specific things that they had not done well the previous season. But their coach, Vince Lombardi, had a different idea. He walked into the training room that summer taking nothing for granted. Lombardi had a tradition of starting from scratch each year. He would begin with the most basic but essential aspects of the game of football. And that summer, in light of what had happened the year before, it's said that Vince Lombardi stood before the 38 professional athletes and coaches who were really one quarter away from winning it all the season before and, and said holding up a pigskin football Gentlemen, this is a football. Coach Lombardi, though, was not making a statement regarding, I think, the intellectual capacity of his football players. He was making a statement about football, about coaching, about winning. And as one of the most successful coaches in the NFL, his methodology was known for hammering the basics. Mastering the fundamentals was the pathway to success, he believed. And six months later, the Green Bay Packers would beat the New York Giants, actually 37 to nothing, to win the national championship. Now, this morning, I'm opening up with that, not because we're a football team, not because we're chasing aspirations of winning a Super Bowl, and most especially not that I'm Vince Lombardi, but we all need to emphasize uh, the importance of mastering the basics. At the start of a new year... Rather than trying to cast a lofty vision or compelling vision, we're going to focus our time on the basics, the fundamentals of our faith and the fundamental marks of our church. And over the next four weeks, we're going to be answering the questions very basically, what is the gospel? What is a Christian? What is the church? And who are we as the Hill Church? And to set the stage, I've asked you already to turn to Matthew Chapter 5, 
We're going to read verses 14 through 16 in just a moment, a text of Scripture where we derive our really identity and purpose as the Hill Church. And we summarize that in our mission statement, which states that we exist to glorify God by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives together. We exist to glorify God by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives together. Next four weeks, we're going to spend time thinking about those four particular questions, unpacking who we are as a church. I want to say to you, if you're a visitor here, we're especially glad you're here. It's a great time to be here. We're going to think about who we are, really going to lift the hood up and let you kind of see who we are as a church. But I want you to know that typically what we do is we preach through consecutive books of the Bible is the way we typically do. And in the month of February, we'll pick that back up. I'll be in the book of Romans dealing with the first five chapters. We'll begin in chapter one and work our way consecutively through to chapter five of Romans. And in the fall, God willing, we're going to go through the book of Ecclesiastes together. So I say that to you to say uh, we're going to do something a bit different this month for a specific purpose. But turn your eyes to Matthew chapter five, verses 14 through 16. I'll read our text as we begin. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Father, we pause after the reading of your word. Um, Lord, we, we've already sang the fact that, Lord, we need you, that you're our one defense. You're our only righteousness. Everything that we need for life, for breath, for spiritual sustenance is not found in us. It's found in you. So, God, even as we pause after the reading of your word, we want to recognize humbly our need for you, our need for you in every area of life, our need for you in this moment to hear, to understand, to obey your word and to grow as a disciple of Christ. Lord, as we think about the question, what is the gospel this morning, particularly as we get to the later half of our text, for some it's a conversation or a topic we may tend to just check out and say I know what that is God I pray you would focus our minds and our hearts attention there is nothing no conversation no topic more important that we all should be involved with till the day that we die than what is the gospel what is the glorious riches of what God has done for us in Christ so God let us guard our time as we think well from your text to honor and glorify your son in his name we pray. Amen. For Matthew 5, I want to do two things this morning. I want to unpack our mission statement, as we call it. And then by way of application, I'm going to think about, we're going to think together about our core beliefs as a church. All of that to answer the question as we move to the end of our service, as we'll take the Lord's Supper, answering the question, what is the gospel? All right. So Matthew 5 is contained within Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a paradigm-shifting section of Scripture in relation both to the kingdom of God and the people of God. John Stott referred to it as the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered, for in it, his, it, for it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to both be and to do. And in Moses-like fashion, Jesus goes up on the mountain to instruct his disciples, 
But unlike Moses, Jesus, he doesn't go up to institute new laws to outline the disciples' faith. Instead, he sets forth a way of living in fulfillment of the law made possible only through the new covenant, the new birth by the Spirit of God. In the Sermon on the Mount, we find a a new kingdom way of living meant to characterize those who are born of the Spirit and walking in the newness of life, the church. The new king has come in Jesus. And the new kingdom people are those born of the Spirit of God, both Jews and Gentiles, known as the church of Jesus Christ. And in Matthew 5, 14-16, Jesus provides the second of two important images meant to mark the identity of this new kingdom people, the church here on earth. And it's essential we know who Jesus is refer- or referring to here, addressing here, we should say. Just a few verses earlier, if you put your eyes back on, on verse 1 of chapter 5, we read, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain to address his disciples. Jesus is speaking particularly and collectively here to his disciples. The two guiding pronouns of this passage, you and your, are both plural. And that's important for us to see. And the the you in verse 14 is also emphatic, meaning you, my followers, and none others are the light of the world. Jesus is not saying, Peter, you are the light of the world. He's not saying, John, you are the light of the world. He's not saying, Matthew, you are the light of the world. He is saying, my followers, collectively, the church, you are the light of the world. Now, this image of light found four times in this section, carries a rich meaning throughout the Bible. And it stands for revelation, it stands for instruction, it stands for hope, joy, salvation, and even the radiance of God's glory, His presence. And first and foremost, we know that God is light. In Him there is no shadow of darkness. This is who God is. We also know that God's inspired word, the revelation of Himself, is said to be a lamp under our feet and a light unto salvation. But in terms of redemptive history, Israel particularly was said to be a light unto the nations. And in passages like Isaiah 42, 6 and 49, 6, we know the coming Messiah, the true servant of the Lord, the true Israelite, would be a light for the nations. And yet all of this imagery all throughout the Bible finds its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus himself. Who declares himself in John chapter 8 verse 12. I am the light of the world. So it's truly remarkable. And a bit stunning. That Jesus looks to his disciples here. And aims this loaded image towards them. Towards us. You. We. Are the light of the world. And Jesus is making clear that he has a. That he has chosen his people. His church. Those who follow him. To be the vehicle through whom his great light of salvation can shine in this dark and desperate world. The significance of the local church in redemptive history must not be missed. There is no greater institution on this earth that anyone could be a part of than the church of Jesus Christ. I didn't misspeak when I said that. The church is the only institution that possesses the life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that has nothing to do with... Us has everything to do with Jesus and the work, his work of salvation, whom we are to call to represent. God has saved us. God has redeemed us, church, to be something. 
And make no mistake, our role in redemptive history was just as passive as it was for Israel coming out of Egypt. We were bound by our sin as well. All we could do was cry out to God for rescue. He accomplished everything necessary to make us who we are. God has done something truly wonderful and marvelous in saving and establishing us as his people. And now that we are his people, the church, the, uh, the, 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 the life that accompanies our redemption is anything but passive. God has saved us and redeemed us to be something. We are to be a distinct people, a holy people, a set apart people. We are to be characterized by light in this dark world. And our distinction has everything to do with God and his work in us. He is the light. And his gospel has not only saved us, but is transforming us into his image. We are to be a distinct people, a gospel people, but never a disengaged people. Verse 14 says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do a people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. German pastor and theologian Diedrich Bonhoeffer commenting on this verse said, quote, flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow Jesus. So God did not redeem us. God did not call us into his kingdom to hide us somewhere. Light shines in the midst of darkness and our calling is to be uh, the, the, the bright light of the gospel in this dark and desperate world. We have been given a influential position like a light on a hill that guides people to safety. We are both to attract and to give direction to, to Jesus. We are to stand out. We are to shine far. So what Jesus is speaking of here is a public, distinct, recognizable group of spirit-filled people marked out for engagement in the world. That's who the church is. That's us. That's what it means to be the church. And all of this has an ultimate aim. Look at verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that, you may, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So our aim is directed at the glory, the weight, the magnitude, the majesty of God. There's nothing more ultimate in this world than the glory of God's great name. That my name may be known among all the earth is, the, is God's call through all throughout the Bible. So church, we are called to participate in this as his people by pointing the world to him. So the church itself, the Hill Church in particular, is not about any of us in this room. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about ultimately this community that we're in. It's not about this country. It's not about this neighborhood. It's not about preserving the culture that we live in. It's not about preserving the nation that we're under. The sooner we embrace that reality, the more effective we can be in proclaiming God's glory among the nation. It's about Jesus. It's about the glory of God in the person and work of Christ. So every sermon preached, every community group gathering that we have, every event we host, every outreach opportunity needs to be done in the spirit of the words of John the Baptist, that he would increase, that we might decrease. And how do we do this? The text says here, let your light shine before others that they may the world may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This phrase, good works, is a loaded one. We could say a lot here. A lot has been said about what it is. It means for sure, let's not move it out of the way, it means good works, it means good deeds. It does mean that. 
But it means good works or good deeds as described in the Sermon on the Mount. It refers to a new kingdom way of living, a new righteousness attained solely through the work of the Holy Spirit in our new birth, where we live together as God's people in the world. So these good works demand the Spirit of God, and these good works demand the people of God. This is more than philanthropy. This is good works aimed at glorifying God and testifying to the power of his gospel. We're to be marked by a hunger for God, verse 6 said. We're to be merciful, verse 7 said. We're to be pure in heart, verse 8 said. We're to be peacemakers, verse 9 said. We're to rejoice in the face of suffering, verse 11 said. We must not hate our brother, but we must, be, and we must be faithful to our wives. We must keep our word. Do not retaliate. Love our enemies. Care for the poor. We are not to be anxious. We are to build our house on the rock, which is Christ. This is the good works which give glory to our Father who is in heaven. So we are to live out the righteousness we've obtained in Christ. And we're going to do this publicly, corporately, loudly, before the world around us. Because while the gospel is made audible through our proclamation, it's made visible through our lives together. And by the world seeing our lives together, by them seeing our good works, they will give glory to our Father who is in heaven. And this is who the church is to be. The church is to be a city within a city, a little outpost of heaven. We're to be a community of light on this hill, bringing glory and honor to our God by doing good, by proclaiming in word and deed the power of the gospel in our midst. Biblically, this is, this is who we should be, the Hill Church. So geographically, and matter of fact, that's who, that's who this neighborhood knew of this church to be when we got here. And we went around and interacted with our neighbors when we first got here, knocked on doors. We asked them, hey, you know about the church down the street? And everyone would say, ah, I don't know. Oh, the church on the hill. That was what everyone knew in this community. Oh, that church on the hill. So we said, man, we should... Strive to be biblically, strive to be theologically what this church is known for geographically in this community. Let's be the city set on a hill. So we exist to glorify God by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives together. Three parts to that. Our aim, as we said, is the glory of God. The means of accomplishing this aim is gospel ministry, the good news of Jesus Christ. And the vehicle is our lives together as the church. So now while Matthew chapter 5 is our theme verse that guides our mission statement, I want to give you three core beliefs, three foundational beliefs, or we could say convictions that undergird who we are as a church. Take a brief time to walk through these. The first one is that this, that we believe the hope for San Diego and the nations is the gospel of Jesus Christ. First conviction. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Romans 1.16. Or as Jesus says, you, you, you don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. You put it on a stand so that it gives light to all. The gospel, the good news of God's saving work in Christ is the only thing that possesses the power to eternally change. Therefore, everything we do as the church should be centered on the gospel. I wanna, that's, that's language you probably hear a lot. I want to define it a little bit. We all know, I think we, we should know, there are many gospel-denying churches. Churches that deny the necessity of the death of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. 
They're also gospel distorting churches. Churches that preach a false gospel. But there also would be what I would call gospel assuming churches and gospel affirming churches. Gospel assuming churches would agree with the gospel, but you just don't hear much about it. It's just assumed in the background of the life of the church. Gospel affirming churches typically uh, preach the gospel, but beyond explaining how a person comes to faith in Christ, the gospel plays no real role in the life of the body. The, the gospel is sort of relegated to the last five minutes of every sermon. What typically the preaching becomes, what typically the life of the church becomes is more moralism. Let's try hard to live well. It's more like fire insurance, the gospel, than anything else. In both gospel of assuming and gospel affirming churches, as I said, the Christian life is typically motivated more by duty and law rather than delight and grace. Righteousness becomes the pathway to Jesus instead of being the pathway, Jesus being the pathway to righteousness. So in contrast, we want to be a church that's centered on the gospel. We don't want to just affirm the gospel. We want to live our lives. We want our lives to be formed, to be founded on the gospel. The gospel is more than a message concerning how a person goes to heaven. The gospel defines the essence, the, the, the all of the Christian life itself. It's not just the door we enter into the Christian faith. It's the pathway that the Christian life lives on, abides on, grows on. The gospel must be the why behind all that we do. It must inform the preaching. It must inform our singing. It must inform baptism in the Lord's Supper. It must inform how we serve one another, how we understand our community, how we posture ourselves in our city and the world. It informs singleness and marriage and parenting and giving and evangelism and discipleship. There's no area where the gospel should not be central. It must be centered on the gospel because it is the only hope of our city and the world. Secondly, we believe God's primary means of making his gospel known in the world is through the local church, God's family. Church is not an accident in history. It's not a divine afterthought. The church lies at the very center of God's eternal purposes in Christ. You are the light of the world. God has chosen the church as his instrument for making the gospel known in his world. Christ founded the church, as we know from Matthew chapter 16, 18, where Jesus announces that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. From Acts 20, 28, we know Christ purchased the church with his own blood. The church is called the body of Christ and said to be the very dwelling place of God's spirit and the manifestation of his glory to the world. So while Christian proclamation makes the gospel audible, as I said, Christian living together in local congregations makes the gospel visible. The gospel is the, uh, the church is the gospel made visible. So given the fact that God has chosen to make his gospel known in the world through the church, the universal church, which every believer is a part of, must find its expression in the world through local churches. In other words, the church must be a visible, identifiable, and purposeful body on this earth for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of Christ. This happens when local churches, uh, through local churches, when local churches are established. So the question we would ask is, what's the difference in your life between a group of Christians that you know in the community and a local church that you're a part of? Or what's the difference between a group of Christians in La Mesa 
and a local church in La Mesa? Is it simply just time and space? The fact that you meet here at 10 to 11 on a Sunday, is that what makes the difference? The Bible would say no. The local church is defined by a unique relationship and for a specific purpose. A local church is comprised of believers committed to God, committed to one another in a specific relationship we call membership for the purpose of gospel ministry together in a specific context at a specific moment in history. Membership in a local church is not about business practices and attendance records and accounting purposes. Membership in a local church has everything to do with gospel ministry. We're called as God's people to proclaim something and to be something together. We must be the gospel made visible in a lost and dying world. And this demands a certain way of living together. So uh, membership in a local church gives tangible expression to the reality of what the Bible calls us to in our relationship together. There are over 50 one another passages in the Bible, love one another, serve one another, admonish one another, submit to one another, live in harmony with one another. Membership in the local church puts real names and real faces on those one another's for you. That you can obey the word of God with specific people. As the Hill Church, we seek to be a family of believers committed to God and to one another for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel through our lives together. This brings us to our third belief. How do we do that? We believe our task or our mission as the Hill Church is making disciples. So the church is not just a family. The church is a family with a mission or on a mission. We're a family commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to go and make disciples. Matthew chapter 28, if we were to turn over, actually just turn over there. Matthew chapter 28. We don't disconnect Matthew 5 from Matthew 28. The text is building. He's calling them to live a specific way for a specific purpose. What is that purpose? Final words of Matthew chapter in Matthew's gospel. And Jesus came and said to them, his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the resurrected Jesus, the one possessing all authority in heaven and on earth. He's the one who commissions us to make disciples of all nations. And how do we do that? It says here in the text, by at least baptizing, marking disciples, and teaching them to observe, to obey all that I have commanded them. We're to learn and we're to... We're to understand the reality of the doctrinal truths of the faith, but that's not enough. We're to obey them. Those are to inform our lives and be put into practice. There's a way of living that follows right thinking of Jesus. Jesus is about executing a mission. His mission is making disciples. His very presence has been promised to aid us in the process. So discipleship is the ministry of the church. It's not a ministry. It's the ministry. Go make disciples is not a suggestion that we get to debate. It's a command from the sovereign Lord himself. So the gospel, the power of God unto salvation has been given to the church for the purpose of declaring it to the world. And we do that by making disciples. Which we're going to think about specifically the next few weeks together. What is a disciple? How do we think about a disciple? How do we understand 
What does it mean to grow as a disciple, particularly here at the Hill? But I'm going to close, or at least transition now, to answering that question specifically, what is the gospel? That's the most important question we need to answer. What is the gospel? And we're going to do that by way of the Lord's Supper in just a moment. We want to say first that the gospel simply is good news. It is the declaration of what God has done in Christ. The gospel is a divine declaration that carries with it a glorious, a wonderful invitation. I want to show you this from the prophet Isaiah about 700 years before the coming of Christ. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53. You can use the table of contents if you need to. Don't be ashamed by that. Find it. Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, the prophet, he's pointing forward to a day when God's son, the suffering servant, the theme he has been building in Isaiah, the Lord Jesus, as we know, would come and die as a substitute in the place of sinners. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. Everybody there? I don't think anybody's there. Everybody there? All right, chapter verse 4. Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in providing for our greatest need and sending a substitute to die in our place, taking the eternal punishment we deserve for our sin. God the Father sent his perfect son, his righteous son, his sinless son, Jesus, the only one born not deserving punishment to bear our grief, to carry our sorrows on the cross. Jesus was afflicted. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sin. By Jesus' wounds, we are healed. And though we went astray in our sins, the Lord laid on Jesus our iniquities. God the Father crushed His Son that we might have life. And this life is made available to us because Jesus rose from the grave. Demonstrating his power over both sin and death. That is the gospel message. That is the declaration of what God has done. This is the greatest news for all mankind. God has acted on our behalf in Jesus. The gospel is not a message outlining how we can earn our way to heaven. The gospel is not a a message about a bag of treasures that we receive from God when we obey him. It is the declaration of what God has done. It's the greatest message of human history. And it entails a glorious invitation. And that's exactly what the prophet communicates just 
two chapters over in chapter 55. Turn over to chapter 55. In light of what God has accomplished, the prophet tells us that now God invites us to come. Chapter 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, and come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. No less than 12 commands Form this glorious invitation here. Come, everyone, to partake in what God has accomplished, it says. That's the call. However, this invitation is qualified in two very important ways. The one who comes, they must come with a thirst. And the one who comes must come with a poverty. Come, everyone who is thirsty, and come, he who has no money. Neediness is necessary. Deep desire, communicated through thirst, is necessary, coupled with a state of poverty. In other words, we must recognize that what we need from God cannot be purchased from God. But it can be received from God. In fact, we are offered three things when we come. It says here water. It speaks of milk. It speaks of wine. Water speaks to our most basic need of sustenance. Milk speaks of our nourishment, our strength. Yes, babies need water, but they need milk. Wine speaks to our delight, to our blessing. When the harvest is plentiful... The wine was abundant in Israel, which gladness which followed and produced the gladness of man's heart, the Bible says. But in verse 2, the prophet poses a rhetorical question in the middle of this invitation. He says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Why do you look for, to the world for that which will not satisfy you and you labor for that which is in vain? He says, instead, listen. Diligently incline your ear to receive what's good. Rich food. That's a delight. And then he brings us to verse three, where we really discover the heart of what's going on here. His invitation. Look at it. Incline your ear and come what? To me. Here that your soul may live. Beloved. What you and I, what every human being in the world needs most is God himself. God is the substance of this invitation. 
He and he alone is our sufficiency and our satisfaction in the Lord Jesus. He is the source and substance of our greatest need, of our deepest longings, and of our fullest joys. And through the work of the gospel, we are enabled and we are beckoned to come to receive new life in him. God promises in our coming to respond by providing us with security, with intimacy, and with eternal satisfaction. He says, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love of David. Just a moment, we're going to be invited to come to the table. If you're not a Christian this morning... I loving you ask, I lovingly ask that you do not come to the table. Instead, I want you to reflect on why you haven't come to Christ. You know your own heart. You know your own sin. And so does God. The one whom in your sin you stand guilty before eternally. And yet in that reality still hear this call of grace extended to you this morning. Why would you spend yourself in search of that which will not satisfy you? Why would you, would you give effort and labor for that which will be in vain? God is your only true satisfaction. He has accomplished what's necessary for your restoration. Through his righteous life lived for you and his sacrificial death accomplished for you, he has overcome your rebellious heart on the cross if you will receive him by faith. So in a moment, as we come to the table You need to come to Christ. Confess your sin and your guilt to God and come to Him. Are you thirsty? Come to Christ and drink. If you're hungry, come to Christ to eat. If you're spiritually poor, come to Christ to delight in rich food. Come to Christ by faith that your soul may live. But Christian, we too have everything we need in Jesus. Make that your confession this year. You have in Jesus water. You have milk. And you have wine. You have sustenance, you have nourishment, and you have joyful abundance in Jesus. Why would you, why do we look to this world and the things of this world for the satisfaction, for the affirmation, for the security, for the intimacy that only God himself 
can and has provided you. Christian, let's stop trying to earn our place at the table and come to the table that we belong to and truly live. That's the call of the gospel. That's the message of the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel. If you're going to serve ushers, you can come forward. Before we pass the elements, and then I'll come back forward and lead us in taking of the Lord's Supper. I'm going to give us a moment to reflect. Pause our hearts, quiet our hearts, and pray. I'll lead us in prayer before we pass the plates. Receive the elements, and then I will come back forward afterwards after we sing, and I will lead us in taking them together. God, we, we confess, we, we know from your word, we know from personal experience that you have accomplished what we need in your son. We thank you for your patience, we thank you for your grace, we thank you for your unending mercy towards us, all of which we know through the person and work of your Son. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his righteous life and his death on our behalf. Holy Spirit, thank you that you opened our eyes, that you worked in our hearts to bring life in us. And God, we confess that though we know the truth of who you are, we know the reality that you are everything we need. God, we forfeit that truth so often in our hearts. We run after, we chase after, we give our hearts to so many lesser things, believing lies that there is somehow a level of security, acceptance, success, stability out in the world that will somehow fulfill us, satisfy us. And God forgive us. We are fickle, sinful creatures. Left to ourselves, we would have no hope. So God, again, we confess our sin to you and we, we say, Lord, help us. Not merely help us to live and do, but God, help us to see. Help us to see the beauty of who you are, the truth of the message of the gospel for our lives. And help us to feast upon your son. God, I I do pray for anyone in this room who does not know you or maybe walked in with a wrong understanding of what Christianity is and has just now been confronted with the gospel message in a way they had not heard before. God, I pray you would work in their hearts. Call them to yourself. Help them to be honest with themselves before you. 
that they might taste and see that the Lord is good. Lord, as we sing in just a moment, holding the bread and the cup, might we sing as Christians, set free, born anew, Christians who've been sealed by your work, who stand secure and accepted in you. God, help us this year to live in light of the gospel, for the gospel, and live as gospel people. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.